You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So it's so great to see all of you here in the room. And of course, all of you who are online, either watching this or maybe listening to it later, so glad that we get to gather together to worship and seek God together. And so to start our time in the Word this morning, I ran across a, uh, a little story that I'd like to read to you. This is a true story, and it kind of sets the tone of where we're going to go this morning. And it's entitled, Assailant Suffers Injuries from a Fall. Orville Smith, a store manager for Best Buy in Augusta, Georgia, told police that he observed a male customer, later identified as Tyrone Jackson of Augusta, Watching him on surveillance cameras, he saw him put a laptop computer under his jacket. So when confronted, the man became irate, knocked down the employee, drew a knife, and ran for the door. Outside on the sidewalk were four Marines. You know where this is going to go. Outside on the sidewalk were four Marines collecting toys for the Toys for Tots program. Smith said that the Marines stopped the man, but he stabbed one of the Marines, Corporal Philip Dugan, in the back. The injury, though, did not appear to be severe. After police and an ambulance arrived at the scene, Corporal Dugan was transported for treatment. The subject was also transported to the local hospital with two broken arms, a broken ankle, a broken leg, several missing teeth, possible broken ribs, multiple contusions, assorted lacerations, we're not done yet, a broken nose and a broken jaw. And here it comes. Injuries he sustained when he slipped and fell off the curb (laughs) after stabbing the Marine, according to the police report. Must have been a really big curve (laughs) and a really tough curve and a curve probably in the form of four Marines. So what's the moral of the story here? Well, if you're going to rip off a laptop, don't stab four Marines on the way out. I mean, come on, right? And we can do better than that. How about don't steal, right? And for most of us, there's something when we hear a story like that, in a day and age where we see, you know, these serial thefts going on where people, crowds of people literally are going into malls and ripping off stores all at the same time, or trains, trains. Did you see that article? Trains are being stopped and pillaged and and stuff stolen from them. There's got to be a part of us that hears a story like that and says, finally, some accountability. Finally, someone who gets served justice. Well, this morning, we're we're looking at this very reality of justice, and in particular, we're looking at this reality of judgment. Woohoo! Aren't you glad you came to church today or you're watching today to hear a sermon on judgment, what we all want, right? But it's fundamentally important that we have a biblical understanding of judgment because it protects us from the extremes that we can go to regarding this reality of life and this reality of this broken world, this sinful, selfish world that we live in. And unfortunately, when it comes to judgment, especially in our culture, but Jesus followers can do this too, we can go to extremes. Because you see, on one extreme, there's this idea that God somehow delights in judgment. 
that he loves to judge. And there are verses like this, though, that absolutely blow that out of the water. That is not true. God is not this cruel entity that delights in bringing judgment. Out of the Old Testament, Ezekiel 33:11, the very book that follows Jeremiah here after Lamentations, it says this, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And we see that heart of God in Jeremiah. And we're gonna see that significantly in these chapters we're about to look at. So we want to avoid this extreme where we assume that God delights in judgment. He doesn't delight in judgment. However, God does judge evil. He has to, and we'll look at that reality here in just a minute. But look at what it says in one of the chapters we'll look at today. And this is talking about the people of Israel. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? They have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. It's not a question of if he's going to punish them, but when he will punish them. And you see, what I would submit to you this morning is that a biblical, a, a accurate understanding of God's judgment is essential to worship. And actually, the judgment of God can and should lead to the worship of him. Because God's heart, as we saw last week with Gary Brashears, and as we'll continue to see as we journey through this book, God's heart is always that people would turn from their selfishness and their sin and turn to him, that they would do what the Bible calls repent. That is always the heart of God. He always wants those who have wandered away to return to him and those who don't know him to know him. But what happens when people don't? Or what happens when people won't? Well, that's where the reality of God's judgment comes into play. Now, we're looking at two chapters this morning. And just like the last time I preached, we don't have time to comprehensively read every single one of these chapters and go through them. So we're going to do a representative study of these chapters. We're going to jump around. But we are going to give a good look at what this reality is all about. And this is the first thing that I think we really need to make a case for is this. God's judgment is actually necessary. It is. God's judgment is necessary in this sinful, selfish, broken world that we live in. And there are multiple reasons why. We won't cover all of them, but we'll cover some of them that are highlighted here in these two chapters. And here's the first. It's necessary because God needs to end evil. Evil cannot be allowed to go on unchecked and unaccounted for. And I think that's something, if we really think rationally and reasonably about it, that we would sign on to especially if you've ever been on the receiving end of someone else's sin or selfishness or, or evil. I mean, look what the people were doing. And I just opened my Bible and just looked right up to these first six chapters that we've gone through so far. My friends, this is a 52-chapter book. We're only six chapters in, and this is what we're already being told the people are doing. They're practicing idolatry. They've exchanged the one true God for false gods, which no one did. All of those Cultures around them that worshiped multiple gods that were polytheistic never exchanged one god for another. They might add another god to this pantheon of gods they would worship because they wanted to cover their bases, but they never discarded a god. God's people have discarded him for false gods. 
there's false prophecy going on. There's people saying, hey, this is what God said when God did not say that. There's always been fake news, if you want to use that language. They're committing sexual and spiritual adultery. There's murder running rampant through the culture, perversion, greed, injustice. They're exploiting the poor, taking, taking advantage of the fatherless, neglecting and ignoring the widow, widows in their community. And we're only six chapters into this book. And this is how the people are, are living. And look at the language that is used to describe the impact of this. Jeremiah 4, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty and at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles, and in particular your Old Testament, and being even more specific, the book of Genesis, what is this language? It's Genesis language. This is a direct link all the way back to the beginning of human history before God created of what the earth was like. It was formless and empty. Another way to say it is that it was in disorder and chaos. And what is being described here is the unraveling of the good ordering of creation itself. Because the reality we'll see over and over again in this amazing book is that life isn't just about you. And life isn't just about me. My choices, my decisions, sinful or godly, don't just impact me, they impact everybody around me. And what, what was being proclaimed here, what is being put in front of us here is this really stark, dark, incredibly troubling picture of there's no people in the land. And if there's no people in the land, who's going to steward the land? There is this moral and spiritual disintegration that begins to happen. And because people, because we are created in the image of God, because we're his image bearers, we create culture, we create communities, we create civilization, we work, we worship. And this is a picture of none of that happening because of the impact and the reach of unchecked sin and selfishness that has run rampant through the community. And the great lie the original lie that Satan convinced Adam and Eve of and that comes at us again and again and again is life is all about you. And that's simply not true. But the worship of self does exactly what we just saw in those verses there. It doesn't promote community. It actually destroys it. And if that isn't enough fuel for your fire, do you really want to live forever in this world we see around us? A world where there's death and disease and loss and disaster and injustice and heartache? This isn't the way God intended this world to be. This is a world that has been broken by sin. And thank God that God is doing something about it and is ultimately going to reverse it and restore it to what he always intended it to be. So why is God's judgment necessary? To end evil. But it's also to hold people accountable. Look what this 
goes on to say, your own conduct and actions have brought this on you. This is your punishment. And how bitter it is, how it pierces to the heart. My people are fools. They do not know me. They're senseless children. They have no understanding. They're skilled in doing evil, and they, not, and they know not how to do good. You know, Proverbs, that incredible book of wisdom says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Well, what's the opposite of that? To deny God. To not know God. To willingly choose not to know him as your God. In fact, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1 and 2, it says that someone is incredibly foolish who says there is no God. And no one has any excuse to say that. The very creation around us points to the existence of a loving, knowable, personable God. Now, you need his help to know him and to cross over from death to life and to receive him into your life. And he wants to give you that help if you and I will respond. But the apex, the shining example of foolishness is to say, eh, there is no God. Well, God has to hold people accountable for that. But God's judgment is also necessary because it actually brings healing. It says in Jeremiah 6, as a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. And he's talking about the nation here. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Now that's interesting. Sin, selfishness being compared to sickness and, and a wound. It goes on to say this, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. And you'll see this metaphor used throughout this book. We'll see it in chapter 8. In chapter 10, it will be described as an incurable wound. You ever had a wound that wouldn't heal? I was thinking about this. And when I was a little kid, I remember being out, you know, on the school ground playing during recess, which was my best subject and my favorite subject while I was in school. And I'm out playing and, and I can't remember how it happened, but I got this splinter lodged under one of my fingernails and went all the way into the quick. Yeah, not fun. And I thought, nah, I'll just walk it off. No big deal. And it began to hurt. And it began to hurt badly. And finally, it hurt so badly that I, I went to the teacher and said, this is what I did. And she about keeled over when she saw how ugly that was. And it was already infected. And, and I had to go to the doctor and they had to pull it out. And that's a whole other story. That wasn't very much fun. But it didn't get better. Because it was infected, it just got worse and worse. And finally, the infection had to be, had to be treated. And see, the reality with our sin and with our sinfulness is that it never stays the same. Sin, selfishness, brokenness that is unaddressed is like an infection that just gets worse and worse. Sin always grows. The book of James talks about this reality. Sin never stays the same. It's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, we need to take drastic steps to deal with the sin and selfishness in our lives. That's why he used 
these comparisons of it's like gouging out your eye or cutting off your arm. Does he literally mean you should gouge out your eye and cut off your arm? No, but he was making the example in Matthew 5 that you have to take steps to deal with sin radically because if it's not addressed, it just gets worse and worse. And so God has to bring judgment because he wants to bring healing. And he brings healing through right relationship with him. You know, we spend necessarily so a lot of time talking about repentance, but there's a whole another side of repentance that is more than just turning from our brokenness. There's a whole nother half to that. And it's talked about in the gospel. After Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, this is what the message of the early church was, and it's still our message and reality today. And this was what Peter was saying in Acts chapter 3. Repent then, turn from your sin, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. But here comes the other part that we sometimes forget, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He goes on to say, when God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Repentance is more than just not doing something. Empty religion says, stop doing that. That's what repentance is. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, isn't just you stop doing something. Repentance is just as much about what you do as it is about what you don't do. Let me give you an example. This came to me this morning as I was thinking about what is, a, what is an example of what we're talking about here of both sides of repentance, turning from sinfulness, but also allowing God to bless you living in the blessing that comes from living life on his terms. This is talked about in many places, but in Ephesians 4, verse 28, it says this, and I want you to think about the illustration, by the way, that we opened this sermon with, with the dude who made the incredibly poor choice to rip up a laptop and take on four Marines. Be thinking about that as I read this to you. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Okay, there's the stop doing sin. But here comes the rest. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. What if our thief in that story not only stopped stealing, but because he met the one true God, received Jesus Christ into his life through the power of the Holy Spirit, now not only stopped stealing, but now he deliberately went to work and provided things so that he could be a blessing to other people who were in need. So he doesn't just stop taking things, he actually is now giving things to people. What would you call that? Transformation. We call that the gospel. Repentance isn't just about what you stop doing, it's about also what you do. So here it comes. Last week, Gary Brashears necessarily took us through a time, for those of you who are here or who saw that sermon or listened to it, a time of reflection of what does repentance look like in our relationships? So are you still repenting? That's not just stopping doing those selfish, sinful things. It's also doing godliness. It's also being a blessing to others. That's that whole other side of repentance. So why does God have to judge sinfulness? Why is it necessary to promote righteous, right living? 
So are you repenting? Not just stopping what is sinful and selfish, but doing what is godly and a blessing. You can through the power of the Holy Spirit. We got to move on. God's judgment is necessary also because he's patient. Look at all these verses that talk about the patience of God in this very book when it comes to judgment. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares. If you can find one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. You know, this makes me think back to the book of Genesis as well, right? When Abraham is negotiating with God for the city of Sodom. And at that point, it was like, hey, okay, if you can find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. Here, he's just looking for one. And he really wants to find the one. He doesn't want to have to exercise judgment. But he will. Here it says, should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Do you hear God agonizing over what he's being forced to do? Take warning, Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so no one can live in it. Already, six chapters into this book, how many times have we seen and heard God warning his people, warning his people, warning his people? And that's really not the full extent of it. They've been warned for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Jeremiah preached what we're reading and listening to for over 30 years to this people with no change. 30 years. Prior to that, the prophet Zephaniah was saying basically the same thing that Jeremiah was. And it wasn't just Jeremiah. In his lifetime, Habakkuk and Obadiah were also prophesying and saying many of the same things. And there's even more. It tells us that during the reign of King Josiah, which is in part when Jeremiah's ministry took place, it says that the book of law was found, that it had been lost for generations, and it was found, and we don't know which part of the law it was. Most scholars believe it was the, the book of Deuteronomy. It was read in the hearing of the people, and this is where, again, more significance comes into play. So in my own personal reading, I was just reading Deuteronomy 31, and before Moses dies, before they are to cross into the promised land, he teaches the nation a song that they are to sing to remind themselves of what God has done for them. But in the song, it talks about exactly what's going to happen with Jeremiah's time and time of, of season with the community. That the community is going to turn their backs on God. They're going to betray him. They're going to commit spiritual and sexual adultery. They're going to do all the things that are being described in this book. This was a song that was taught to generations. And even if they didn't know the song at this point, this word was read in their presence. They heard it. And still they continue to do what they did. Wherever you see the judgment of God, you will always see the patience of God. Always. These people had hundreds of years, multiple prophets. They knew the word of God. They had heard the word of God. They had Jeremiah for 30 years and Habakkuk and Obadiah telling them, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And finally, it happened. Which brings us to me and you. Is God patient with you? Oh, he so is with me. Gosh, I was thinking about this this morning. Just with my insecurities. 
I'm a perfectionist when I'm unchecked by the Spirit of God. I'm a people pleaser when I'm unchecked by the Spirit of God. I can be so profoundly selfish when I'm not living out my true identity through the Spirit of God. My friends, I've struggled with this stuff for over 50 years, and I'm only 35 years old. Go figure. (laughs) Just making sure you're with me. Over 50 years. And it's two steps forward and sometimes three steps back. And God is ever so patient with me, and he is with you. And you have to remember that when you think about the judgment of God. But there's another reality, and it's this. The judgment of God is a real thing. It's a real deal. But look what people were saying in the face of all these warnings, in the face of all this truth. This is what they were talking about. They've lied about the Lord. They've said, he's not going to do anything. No harm's going to come to us. We'll never see sword or famine. The prophets are but a wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, they all practice deceit. And we saw this verse a little earlier. They dress the wound of my people as though it weren't serious. But catch this. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Do we not hear the same in our culture today? When you talk to people who don't know God, how do they respond to the reality that Jesus is going to come back? That there will be a final judgment of all that is evil and broken and sinful and selfish, and eventually he is going to fully put an end to it. And what does our culture say? Whatever. You really believe that? Well, you do you and I'll do me. No, that's not how reality works. That's not how absolute truth works. It's true for all people in all times, in all contexts, in all cultures, in all times of history. And the reality is Jesus is going to come back. He is going to set all wrongs right. It's going to be the great reversal. Shalom will be restored. Right relationship with God. Right relationship with others. Right relationship with self. Right relationship with land. And oh, by the way, he's going to judge evil. Amen. And it's going to come to an end. And that means that everybody who has slapped his hand of mercy and grace away over and over and over and over again, who has resisted his patience with them over and over and over again, is finally going to get judged. Please understand and please hear this. The purposeful delay of God does not mean there will not be a judgment of God, because there will. And this is historical fact. All the things that were being prophesied here Happened. They are historical fact, whether you believe the Bible or not. In 586 BC, the second world's greatest superpower, the first was Assyrians, the second was Babylon. The Babylonians swept down and they obliterated the nation and left a tiny remnant in land and took a tiny remnant back to their kingdom. And all the things that had been prophesied and predicted for hundreds of years happened. This happened. And it is the same certainty that will happen with the return of Jesus. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But we reasonably ask, so why hasn't it happened? It's been over 2,000 years since Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that he would return, and still he hasn't come back. Well, there's an answer for that. 
And it says, uh, we'll jump to it here. It says here, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Here we hear it again. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of God, that people would repent, that people would return. And he's infinitely patient with all of us, but his judgment is real. And there does come a time when his patience necessarily needs to end and his grace necessarily needs to end and he holds people accountable for their choices. Choices have consequences, but even in the midst of all this, he's merciful He is so merciful. And again, we see it scattered throughout this book as well. Look what he says here. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, but I won't destroy it completely. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. He is going to forgive the city. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And this is just representative. This is over and over and over again in the book of Jeremiah is his mercy. He had every reason to destroy this people and to start over with a new people, and he doesn't do that. He promised he would never do that, and he keeps his his promise. He does save a remnant. A remnant does return to the land, just like he promised, and they start over again. And if that wasn't enough, look at how these chapters start. God's judgment, ironically, is hopeful. This is how this starts. If you, Israel, were returned, then return to me, declares the Lord. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and in a truthful, just, and righteous way, you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. I never saw this and appreciated this until giving it further study in preparation for our time here today. If God's people will repent, will return to him, will stop settling for sin and selfishness and brokenness, will believe him that he wants to bless them and give them something better, do you realize what this says here? It's not just about them. It's not just that they will be blessed. It's that all nations will eventually be blessed through them. This is the Abrahamic promise. This is God once again saying, it isn't just about you. It's about everybody around you and who will come after you. That all nations will be blessed by your repentance, if you will repent. My friends, the promise they looked forward to All of God's promises are fulfilled in the one who we just celebrated at Christmas. And who is that? Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Do you realize that what they were looking forward to, what was being prophesied for thousands of years is now your reality and mine? The promised one has come. He has come. 
The one true God has come. He became one of us. He showed us what the spirit-filled life looks like. And then if that wasn't enough, he dies in our place on a cross, rises to new life, takes our brokenness upon him, and in return, in exchange, gives us his power for right living and his power for blessing. Do you believe that? Good. Half of you do. We'll work on the other half. That's reality. But catch this, because this is very important, and in our individualistic culture, we don't tend to think this way, and we completely miss out on this reality. It's more than just about you and me. Your life matters. Hear me. Your life matters. How you live your life matters. You are making a difference in the lives of other people, even if you don't see it. And you do, do you know why I'm so adamant about this? Is because I hear it over and over and over again, and I'm hearing it especially this month. This is the only weekend in the month of January we don't have a memorial or a funeral. We've had memorials recently for Chris Delaney, and Brian Shore, and John Bradley. And this coming weekend, we'll have a memorial for Eric Anderson. And do you know what's true for every single one of their lives? Is the impact of their lives goes so far beyond what any of us, I think, could have ever truly appreciated or known, certainly them. Communities our community, other communities, impacted by how they live their lives. You know, I get the privilege of being a part of Eric's memorial this coming Sunday. And I, I knew Eric pretty well, but I've learned so much about Eric that I didn't know. Did you know he was in a motorcycle club? He was president of a chapter of that motorcycle club? Not a motorcycle gang, a motorcycle club. And he was in a, he was in a community of car enthusiasts and a bunch of them are going to be either watching online like many of you are here this morning or in person at that memorial. Do you think Eric had any idea the impact of his life? I'm, I'm not sure he did. I'm not sure any of us do. But this is what I do know. Your life matters. How you live your life matters. And what God is doing in these passages we've looked at is not just calling his people back to right relationship with him. He's reminding him of their mission. You are the hope of the world through Jesus Christ. They were looking forward to that. That's our reality now. We as the church are the hope of the world through Jesus Christ. We are about loving God, loving people, reaching people, and developing people. COVID doesn't change that. Loss doesn't change that. Difficulty doesn't change that. Heartache doesn't change that. That is who we are. So what is your part in the divine rescue mission? Because that's what we're about. We are about showing people there is a better way than sinfulness and selfishness and making life all about them. That there's a life of blessing and hope and joy and purpose and peace that's found in right relationship with God. And so as our worship team comes and as we respond to what we've heard this morning, I'm gonna ask you again, what is your part in the divine rescue mission? How will you today 
live out right relationship with God. It starts once again with repentance of not just choosing to walk away through the power of the Holy Spirit and God's empowerment of the selfishness, sinfulness, broken stuff we have a tendency to gravitate back to, but it's also about living out the gospel, being a blessing to others. And it starts with our trust and our loyalty being fully God's. It's about having clean hands, which is another way of saying having clean hearts, which he gives us if we'll respond to him. So Sarah and team, will you lead us there? Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.